Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. There's so many places to start, and we were talking about this before. It's impossible to talk to a comedian right now and not address the world you're living in. Yeah. And that we're all living in, but you especially. Right. How are you making sense of this? And and when you say this, do you mean the the umbrella of all things? The umbrella of because the it's sexual so much. allegations, it's, uh, assault, all, all of that. Specifically that. Um, I uh, only see it as a great thing i feel like in the current climate that we live in there is no you just don't feel any kind of sense of justice it's kind of it seems like something that's fading away and also makes you question if it was ever truly there justice to begin justice in general so to like kind of see uh what's happening and seeing that there's there's consequences and backlash for people who behave inappropriately inappropriately and illegally (laughs) it's like you know, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of justice today, so it is kind of refreshing to actually see it. It's unfortunately at the expense of a lot of people's having to uh, bravely come out about something that's very hard to talk about, but it's kind of great that there is a boiling point to this type of behavior where, you know, it seems like a lot of people are coming forward because I think I think there's a lot of people that live in the reality that know, you know, sexual assault and harassment and everything that falls under that is is uh it's wrong and it's horrible and it's horrific and it's out there but then there's a whole other group of people who think it's nonsense and there's no way it's as like rampant as it is but mm. it's it's kind of like you know even even with this currently happening right now there are people going yeah no it's it's i thought it was this bad and there's other people going i think a lot of these women are lying because i don't think it's this bad <laughs> and it's like well Whatever you think or don't think, it's finally coming out, and this is the reality of it. So the pe- the people who don't believe it by this point, I do wonder what's rattling in their head. Like, why not believe it? Yeah, what, what's the because that's the thing. Like, when people have opposing views, I do try to think. Okay, there is a reason for this view. I don't agree with it, but there's a reason you have it. Yeah, but I actually cannot find. One actual fair reason <laughs> right. that you would say no to these people. Yeah, or you would just immediately call them liars and say that's impossible and defend someone you've never met. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? A lot like, of defending of yeah. people who've never met. Yeah, like anyone being like, 
like just imagine some of you. Like, I don't think Harvey Weinstein did it. Like, have you ever met him? I've never met him. I don't even know who he is. Then how? Why, why are you so passionate? And why do you think it's so absurd that he wouldn't do this? It's. I think people think like with Bill Cosby and it being like fifty or sixty women, whatever it was, and they were just kind of like. Well, there's no way. They almost think no way because it's too many women. They're like, I bet it was three and the rest were wanted attention. It's like, no, you're you're talking about a man's lifetime. Yeah. His lifetime of being able to behave this way and get away with it. At what point do you think he would just stop and go, all right, I met my quota of how many people I was going to rape or you know assault. It's like, no, he would do it forever. Mm. He would always do it. It's, it's, it's who he is. Right. Um, but see that the interesting part of what you're saying is that it's who he is, and and I've been trying to unpack the psychology of it, which is are people acting this way often out of power and finally having power, or were they just hardwired this way as teenagers? Even did something happen at a younger age? I mean, it's so interesting to see and try to figure out what what's going on. Yeah, I I, I don't know. But I do know that they all possess the ability to know it's wrong. That's the only thing we can walk away with. You know what I mean? Because they, de- they, they definitely might be it. like, well, I was like, oh, well, maybe I experienced this as a child and that's why I'm like this. It's like, well, I don't know that that erased the fact that you know that what you're doing is is wrong and right. it's hurtful and it has lasting effects on, you know, traumatic effects on other people, on your victims. Um yeah, but it is, it's it's one of those things we may never understand. It's like talking about like gun control and, and when people can say, well, guns don't kill people, people kill people. It's like, well, then what is the thing that you do to try to prevent the wrong people from getting the guns? Because anyone could do it. When everyone's like, well, he had a mental <laughs> thing. It's like, well, then do you look at terrorists and go, they had a mental yeah. thing too or do you go oh no they believed in something so they that's why they did it it's like well it's tough it's, to navigate it's I mean, weird I, yeah you, I, I mean that's a conversation we don't have to run down because that's like <laughs> the, the the concept of mental health in this country mm-hmm. is like non-existent i guess the the thing i wanted to, to go over and we'll move past this yeah, yeah, yeah i don't totally. want to do this for an hour <laughs> but the stuff with louis is um i think the most upsetting for a lot of people who just love louis right we yeah. forget in LA, like most of the country have like they don't they've never met Louis. Right, yeah. They're not in the LA scene of or like even New York. There's mm-hmm. like or Austin and Portland have these bubbles of comedy where they've seen Louis at like an open mic and they have some existing relationship. Most people have just seen the show. Right, yeah, yeah. Most people have seen some special on HBO. Right, yeah, yeah. And I think it's been upsetting for them to learn that. But everyone I've talked to about it is it's like yeah, we've known this for years, and I I knew it four years ago. I'd heard shit. Yeah, I, I heard it stand. I heard us a, a a comedian do a bit about it. Right, and like an open mic in SF at like Doc Slab. <laughs> right, yeah. And it's like what this was known. Yeah, someone made a joke in Doc Slab like this, about people, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like a small comedy club in SF for people who don't know. Mm-hmm. That's how far it got. Yeah. Well, it was ubiquitous. I I I heard it when I first heard it a while ago. I I kind of was like. I, I kind of scoffed at it and thought it was just a rumor because it seemed like such a ridiculous sexual act. <laughs> I was almost like, I don't know, that sounds too crazy. Right. Then I heard the second time, the third time, and like very easily I was pushed over to like, I don't know, I'm hearing about it a lot and I'm hearing like other people are victims and you know, you you hate that a lot of times your your natural instinct is to not believe this thing, but it wasn't like someone's like, it, it, you know the actual act of like well he took his clothes off and jerked off was just like that seems it so seems, absurd it seems strange that i can't even wrap my mind even now knowing <laughs> that it is 100 percent the truth it's still like a weird like thing to visualize happening because you're like i don't know i just never seen that it's bizarre so at the, in the beginning you know i scoffed at it as a I scoffed at it but i just didn't it just didn't register for me as a thing and then it became a thing that I was like, yeah, I think it is the truth. But it's also one of those things you kind of don't know what to do with that information. Mm-hmm. And you don't know, you don't want to be the person that says it is the truth. And then it's not the truth. And you don't want to be the person that says it's not the truth 
And it is the truth. It's this weird air. For, I, I mean, talking specifically about how it affects us. Right. Because in the larger scale of things, it doesn't. But it does stimulate thought on like, well, how do we respond to it? For me personally, I don't feel anything other than sadness for the victims of this kind of thing. And who knows how many more there actually are. You know, I mean, this article that came out talked about five. You know, it could be a hundred. I don't know. I don't know what it could be. <laughs> but it, right. it, it doesn't. It's probably more than five. Right. But yeah, I don't I don't know that I feel any sense of shock about it. And I don't know that I feel anything other than like the, there's like I said, this like joy that there's a sense of justice for these things. You know, I think him coming out and saying, yes, I did do it was the right thing to do. It seemed like sort of a weird apology slash statement that he put out there. I was just talking about with it with some other comics and they had mentioned like yeah he said the word dick which just seems weird word choice when you're given the circumstances yeah. and given that it's an apology well um, there's no uh sorry in there yeah it's it's someone someone put it on twitter they they did a control f <laughs> yeah. with the word sorry it's not in there yeah it was a it was a confession yeah um which people have been i, I tweeted something and people were like it was not an apology it's a confession yeah. And I'm like, well, it should have been an apology. It should have been an apology. I mean, a confession is certainly something. And in terms of how to, if you're on that side of the, I don't know, the if you're the predator yeah. like that and you have done it, like a confession isn't a horrible place to start. You do have to start. It just, uh, you do have to understand that people's uh, impression of you has changed. But I, I, I don't really even know. For me personally, I don't, I really don't feel anything about it other than the right. fact that you, you truly just feel really bad for the people that have had to live with the fact that that happened to them and how, you know, traumatic stuff like that can be. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people think it's not a big deal, even if it's like, because, you know, you look at it and you go, well, they weren't raped. I heard somebody say, like, well, they weren't raped. It's like, eh, you know, I, I, I can't tell you what <laughs> rape does or doesn't do to you as a person, but I also can't tell you what this other does. So I can't tell you that they're not the same. And I can't tell you that they are the same. But I can tell you they're both, I'm sure, traumatic and definitely changes you and is definitely something you never can delete from your brain, especially when you're at a certain age where it's you're not going to forget you know, no. that it happened. It's going to always be there. And the fact that it came from a prominent person in all these allegations, a prominent person that you will have to like deal with and see. And, like, and now other people to criticize you for coming out. Like, it's... It's a tornado. It's a horrible tornado, but you know it, this is this is justice, and this is what happens. And it, you know, I was thinking you started doing comedy at twenty four, right? And yeah, it was in D.C. Yeah, when you grew up, and I remember hearing this that you know comedians like you didn't idolize them; they weren't your thing. So I was thinking in the in the wake of all this, they're not; these have not been your people. Like you loved yeah. the Marx Brothers growing up. Yeah, but I mean, even I, I, I don't know that I necessarily idolize. I, I don't know. I don't. It's, it's weird to think about like idolizing or having like someone you like look up to. I mean, I certainly do. In the world of comedy, there's people that you, you, you do look up to and you think are great. And maybe that changes as you like get older. Like, you know, I, 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 I loved David Cross growing up. I, I when I started out in stand up, I thought he was like fantastic and i still i haven't seen i don't know that he performs as much stand-up but i have seen his like netflix special it's still there for me but it isn't like if the worst thing tomorrow came out about him i i don't know that i'd feel this like ah but he was my guy you know what i mean right i and and i don't know that he would necessarily feel that about anyone either i feel like as comics we're just kind of like yeah it's entertainment it's fucked up we take dark stuff and we try to make it funny so when you hear the darkest thing you're kind of like yeah that sounds like it's par for the course <laughs> definitely some dark shit going on out there that's interesting i mean I, I taking dark stuff and making it funny has been the motto for i think most comedians mm -hmm. in the 21st century maybe yeah. always yeah but you strike me as uh an aggressively okay insane person um i think i am i mean i feel like i i, I think i'm maybe I mean, I don't know what the scale is, but I guess yeah, I feel the, the pretty average. The confidence in I think I am is really astonishing. Really. I feel sane. I think the older I get, I don't know. But I think I do know that I... I Some people age and they acquire wisdom. 
you yeah. age and you just know less. Well, I think I think as I get older, I'm like, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I am insane. I just, my interpretation of myself or my perception of myself has been yeah. wrong this whole time, but... No, you're probably crazy. I think the only thing that makes me feel like maybe I, there's some sense of sanity is just that I, I do also, in some ways, lead this sort of, I guess, what you would call a normal Yeah, you're married and life, you have a kid. I guess, if... Whatever normal is, I guess people would be like, "Oh, it seems like you're following the blueprint of a of a life of like, oh, you're you live here, you have a car, you have a wife, you have a kid, you're you go to work to do stand up, which is the weird thing." But yeah, mentally, I I don't think I'm super fucked up, or I don't know. No, I, I think they, I think we all go through phases where it can get pretty dark. But I think that's also average for everybody. Mm. And then uh, you know, some people pull through it, some people don't. The jo- the jo- yeah. This answer's horrible. No, no, it's true. Some people pull through it. I think most people don't. I think that's why most yeah. people stop doing comedy. Yeah. The job, you said this on Marin, that the job as vacation is kind of what your thing is when you're on the road constantly. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you, how do you make that okay for yourself when you're on the road that much? I mean, how many tour... What were your tour dates this year? So, um, like how to make it like okay to be on the road or like, yeah, or make be, it, like wake up in the morning and not like hate yourself for being on the road for constantly traveling and like not being away from family yeah, or I think all that. The, so the being away from family is tough. That's, that is definitely the toughest part about it. But I think I also, I mean, I, I like that this is my job and I definitely like that, you know, this is what I set out to do. And I think I, when I started doing stand up the thing that I was like drawn to is that sort of romantic idea of like, you know, someone like, you know, Bob Dylan and other singer songwriters of the like, you know, sixties, whose thing was like, you know, very Kerouac, just like on the road, like have your guitar and go and like be in these places. And I can't even say that specifically those artists did that, but the idea the of idea. it is romantic to me. And I kind of like you going from city yeah, to city. I like that you're just sort of just traveling and all you got is your notebook and it's just your ideas and you go on stage. It's like there's a simplicity to it and a beauty to it. And the fact that it's, it's a performance and the fact that it's art and the fact that I call myself an artist, like I take a great deal of pride in the fact that my occupation is that I'm an artist. I love it. I love it because it, it has no specific meaning. It has no walls. It almost feels like it's it's open interpretation. And I know that something that goes along with it is, you know, there are times you are on the road. There's are, there's times you're playing places, you're in hotels that are just miserable and audiences that just aren't there for you. They just came that night and they don't know what you do. And it just it just doesn't sync up and it's not fun. But overall, I think I'd take that over, you know, a nine to five. I don't necessarily hate a nine to five, but I don't know what nine to five would suit my interests or suit my passion. Um, I think a lot of people, we, we work for money, even people that are artists, <laughs> you work, you're working for money. I think that, uh, the best you can do in, in terms of, you know, trying to chase the American dream is be your own boss who, you know, you're, you're chasing money, but you're, you're, you're passionate about what you're doing to get that money mm. as opposed to just clocking in hating eight hours and then clocking out and just going well in two weeks i'll get my paycheck for that right. day and i'm excited about it like i hate that so much of this world uh, has to live like that because i don't think it's the way anyone was meant to to live so i when i'm in those hotels i'm in those shows i i i'm grateful for the fact that even when it's not great my bad day at work is still kind of fun and I still wear what I want and I get to say whatever I want even if I bomb horribly <laughs> and I won't get fired from me and <laughs> the com- the club might tell me to not come back but I myself will be like no <laughs> you're the president and only employee of this company so we would never you're the get president. rid of you yeah you're you're the president of this company we'll never get rid of you so I love the idea of you being in your hotel looking in the mirror and saying to yourself I'm the president I'm the president. And I of this do company. before I, I head off to the show. I'm sure, <laughs> that's my mantra. I'm before. sure. I'm sure that's what works. <laughs> yeah, that's what gets my confidence up. Does it ever get lonely? Very much, very much so. Yeah, but I, I think I deal well with uh, solitude, so it, it works for me. I don't, I don't necessarily like being around a lot of people. I don't necessarily love being alone. I can definitely handle it. The older I get, there's definitely some people you're. You, maybe the older you get, you kind of like the solitude a little bit more. But even early on, I started going on the road 
in 2006. And since then I have like enjoyed the, you know, getting off stage and being alone in your hotel room, maybe getting high and watching a movie. Like I, I like that. I don't necessarily need other people around. Mm. So in 2004, you do stand up in DC for the first time. Mm -hmm. In those early years, I think you moved to New York. Yeah. What are like the economics of being a stand-up comedian? How are you getting by? When I lived in D.C. and started doing stand-up, my sister was able to get me a job interview um, and, you know, help me get the job at a uh, government contracting firm for the Department of Defense doing like veterans health care stuff. But uh, I wasn't doing any of that. I was really just a secretary as a desktop support specialist. So she helped get me a job. <laughs> That was v like very easy to do, and also desktop support specialist. Yeah, which is basically secretary. Okay, I mean, if I the things I had to do were like prepare the conference room, fix the printer, go get supplies, track everybody that called. I had to like notch how many calls we got yeah. a day, transfer calls. Uh, anybody had an issue, it was on me to like try to problem solve for them. But they were like doing the work. I was like just the like the the sort of office handyman. Right. <laughs> Would sorts. you work on material at your desk? So yeah, I would do that and I would get online and that's the thing. I wasn't supposed to get online, but they also, I tell my boss, I was like, I don't really, it was one of the greatest bosses I've ever had. He totally understood that I was a stand-up. He totally understood I was not trying to climb the ladder. So he was like, oh, you have a college degree. You're kind of overqualified for this job, but you do not care. You'll never ask for a raise. You don't want a promotion. It's like kind of perfect for everybody. <laughs> So that's what I was doing. So also that job, it's in the government. So it overpays. It, it paid way too much money for what I actually had to do. So early on, I sort of was okay at saving money, but I also had some money. So that when I eventually quit that job to start going on the road, I at least saved like a little bit of money that I could kind of chop into. And then when I moved to New York, I was just, you know, uh, temping anywhere I could temp and I would be lucky and get some like three month, four month temp jobs at a place. And I would go and it was almost the same kind of mindless work. I never had a job that really required tons of thinking. Mm. <laughs> I got to basically kind of be in the zone, work on jokes at my desk and, you know, get on the internet. And, you know, that's kind of how I got by. But it, I was also, when I lived in New York, I was middling. So middles, that's tough. You make like a hundred a show meaning you make like 500 bucks a weekend, meaning you probably spent 300 to get to the gig for your flights. Um, now, sometimes they didn't give you a hotel room. Most don't know what that, that term so is. So middling means you're, uh, yeah, there's an MC on the show does like 10, and the middle act, the feature act, does like uh, 20, 20 to 30, and then your headliner goes up. So the feature acts, it's kind of, your pay is between 75 and $100 a show. If it's ever less than that, that's a horrible place. Um, it should be 100 but it's usually 75 to 100 and yeah, sometimes you had to get yourself a hotel room. It wasn't provided. So the way that I made it work is I would go sometimes to, I'll go do a weekend middling, and then I will yeah, figure out the cheapest transportation to the next city I was going to be in and just go on like Monday. And I would couch surf with comics and I would do the open mics. So I would get to know uh, the other comics. I would get to know the comedy scene. And then come Thursday... I would then do the show and, you know, sometimes, or do the weekend, and, you know, sometimes you do get a hotel. So basically mapped out how to go and then stay gone so that when I came back, I didn't lose so much money on travel. Right. Yeah. Because that's where you lose money. You lose a ton of it. You lose a ton of it on travel. And if, and if comics are letting you, like, couch surf, which most are, like, people are pretty okay with it. And they also, you know, they're the... The comedy scene across the country, while it seems like it's huge, it really isn't. Like every comedy scene has its specific, every city has its comedy scene. And then that comedy scene only has, you know, so many people. So yeah, like couch surfing wasn't an issue. And it definitely was the, that was the only way that I could do it was if I was going to go, I had to stay gone. So I would go for the very first time I ever went, I was gone for three months. And then I'd go uh, back to like, the Pacific Northwest, Seattle area, and I would couch surf, and that's how I got to know a lot of comics. It's it's honestly led to a lot of relationships with tons of comics that are still going today. I'm sure. Like, great, long friendships. Uh, in those early years, when you're couch surfing and hopping from city to city, mm -hmm. do you remember a city or set that you were like, oh, shit, I'm not bad at this? Yeah, well, so when I first started headlining... It was after I did uh, Live at Gotham, and uh, I think that came out in 2007, and the joke joint 
in Minneapolis emailed me to come in like headline and they asked if I had headline and I said yes, even though I hadn't uh, because Always you just have yes. to. <laughs> you just have to say that you have and just go do it. And it was that weekend in particular that gave me a sense of confidence like, oh, I, I think I can, I can headline. I can do 45. I can do an hour. I can make this work. Um, yeah, that, that I, and I also, they've since moved venues, but it used to be in a hotel at the Ramada, I think which I thought was just like an awesome hotel near the airport. And the performance space wasn't even like a defined room. Like there wasn't necessarily walls at the back, but there was just something about that room that was so interesting and cool that, yeah, that I, that particular experience I'll never forget. It was during the Super Bowl too. Mm. Uh, the Steelers were playing, I think the Cardinals and the Steelers like won it at the very end. And I was the only one cheering for the guy. I stuck around on Sunday. There wasn't a Sunday show, but I stuck around another day. I did mushrooms during the day and like hung out in the pool at the hotel, which was in Minneapolis. So, yeah, it's so trippy. The like the pool. I wish I could. I had a picture to show you like what this pool looked like because if you saw it, you'd be like, "Oh, that's a perfect place to do mushrooms." Like stone walls. It was a circle. It felt like a water temple. Were you by yourself? My buddy John Conroy, who also started in D.C. and was living <laughs> in Minneapolis at the time, he was on the shows with me and he stuck around and kind of just monitored me. Yeah, uh, and then I went back to my. Room oh, and so watched he, he a, didn't trip with you. No, he was just kind of watching me. And I went back to my room and watched a uh, a documentary on uh, the uh, trials of uh, Ted. Is it Ted Haggard? The the uh, I haven't seen it. The evangelical preacher who uh, was spoke out heavily against yeah. you know homosexuals and then was like found with a male stripper doing meth. Um, that's exactly what I want to watch. I'm yeah, sure. that's why as I was coming down, like I got out of the shower and I like turned that on. I remember sitting on my bed for like 40 minutes being like, oh man, this guy is really, he's really been uh, not great. Yeah. He's really had quite a life. Um, yeah. And then I went and watched <laughs> the Super Bowl in the, in the lobby with uh, a bunch of comics and mm. I don't know why I got off on that story, but that was one weekend that definitely made my, the light bulb go off. Like, oh, I can do this. This is fun. This I is, can totally do shrooms in Minneapolis. <laughs> I, can make, I can make this, this happen. This is totally fine. Yeah. There is a set that you did in a hotel. Yeah, yeah. That uh, was probably the first set I saw of yours. Because <laughs> um, a friend of mine was like, I was living with someone, just my roommate, sophomore year of college, mm -hmm. and he lived in the living room. That's the situation we had. Mm -hmm. And he had this projector, and he started watching this, and he, and he started laughing, and I was like, what are, you, what are you watching? He's like, you have to come in here and watch this. Yeah. I'm like, fuck off. Like, I don't want to do this right now. I'm like, I'm busy. <laughs> right. I probably wasn't busy, but I just didn't want to like go in there and watch it. With yeah. Him. Yeah. And, um, he starts it from the beginning and it's this guy who's you are this guy <laughs> and you're on stage and you start talking and then you're in like some weird hotel lobby and then you start like walking around and then you're going up an elevator. Yeah. And you're walking around. It, it, it's like a Ramada or it's, it's some <laughs> yeah. fucking hotel where you're walking around like the balcony and the second floor and the third floor and you're going up and you're talking. Yeah. And somehow the wireless mic worked. Which was surprising. Yeah. Because I went up to the sixth floor and I truly thought, it, being a wireless mic, I truly thought it would just, wireless like, mics the signal would give out. I know, on stage they'll go out when you're that close They're to that it. They're close. But this one was uh, just kept going and... Uh, yeah, I don't know. That that show, it's at the Hyatt. It's in Bethesda, Maryland. This guy, Kurt Shackelford, ran it every Saturday. And the show was usually downstairs they, of that hotel. They had like five conference rooms. And he would always set up one of the conference rooms to be a comedy club on Saturday nights. And it was so fun because if you headlined it, you got to go up and do like a longer set and he'd give you like a hundred bucks or something. It was fun. It was It was easy to go do. But this particular one was around the holidays and he found out when he got there that all the conference rooms were booked for holiday parties. So they put us in the lobby. So all of us comics showed up and we were like, Kurt, what are you doing in the lobby? Because like, it's horrible. You can tell. Like it's it's 10 stories up. It's the, <laughs> it it's the, the entire lobby roof goes like a Hyatt. It goes all the way to the ceiling. Right. The and so you're like, this couldn't be worse. The moment I started watching, I was like, oh, this shouldn't be here. Yeah, it's horrible. What's going on? It should have been canceled. <laughs> but But we were there and like, you know, enough audience had shown up that you know, you're also kind of like, ah, oh, well, we're all making a little bit of money. We're here. The crowd did show up, and Kurt was like, you know, he's a guy who's like, so what? We're here. He doesn't care about the chemistry of it. I mean, he he does, actually. I, I take that back. He obsesses over the chemistry of the show. But I think he just looked at it like, there's nothing I can do. It has to be in here. 
that's where they're putting us. Yeah. I've already booked the show. I've done all the work. So this is what's happening. Sometimes those things work out really great. So that's the thing. I I, I went up and it, it did work out for me. I, I did you happened have to be plan? videotaping. No, I didn't. I happened to be, I was going to be recording my set anyways, no matter what I did. My girlfriend, wife now, uh, was recording and, you know, I just kind of in the moment had the wireless mic and it, it, it was fine going up. The show itself hadn't been fun. I wasn't even that deep in the show. I might've been like third or fourth. I had smoked a little pot, so I was a little high, so I had the confidence to do something that would fail right. and just deal with it and not <laughs> let it totally affect my ego. So I was just kind of like, yeah, I don't know, let's see what happens. And I truly thought, I truly thought I would walk 30 feet and then it would give out and I would just come back and just figure out something else to do. But it just kept working. And so I was like, well, obviously I'm going to go until it doesn't work. So then I got in the elevator and I was like, the moment the door closed, I was like, oh, this is bad because I'm not going to go up to the sixth floor and it's going to give out the moment the doors close. And now there's just going to be silence all the way to the sixth floor, all the way back <laughs> down and then walk back over the stage and then the mic will come back on. So like, not only have I killed my set, I maybe killed any sense of momentum that the following comics will have to, to deal with, but it just kept working. And I got all the way to the sixth floor and it felt so good to have a mic that was just booming through that whole place and I'm way far away from it, watching the crowd. Like, that's something that will never happen ever again. No. Like, getting to look down at everybody. And they were all like, you know, they, even the audience you could tell was like, this show shouldn't be here. But then they were kind of like, well, this is neat. <laughs> this is kind of something. It was funny. Um, and then, yeah, just going that, and then like going through someone's rooms and the manager being, please don't, please no one else walk around <laughs> please and which makes perfect sense like at the time you're just a comic you don't think oh yeah people have stayed like if i was a customer at that hotel i've immediately been at the front desk like what the fuck there's a guy walking around with a microphone <laughs> i would have been angry but as a comic you're like oh people are laughing who cares go until it's not funny but yeah that was uh that that's that was one of those um sets that kind of pertains to that other question that was one of those sets where it was like Oh yeah, it's kind of fun to take these really big risks, and that was kind of a big one. Like I said, if the mic had given out on the elevator, all of it, the rest of it wasn't that big of a risk. Mm -hmm. But if it had given out when I got up there in that elevator, it would have been an awkward like thing back to the stage, and maybe I could have worked with it. But it was fun to try something and have it really work. Yeah. You know, not everybody in that crowd loved it. A lot of people were like, "I'm here to see a show. This fucking clown is like walking around." <laughs> but there were in like the other comics who were on the show. You could tell, like, when I got off stage, they were even just like, dude, you're fucking crazy. Like, what are you, what are you doing? But even that, you could tell they were like, hey, it entertained us. We don't see that happen, so we kind of got something that we, we don't usually we see. We were stunned. <laughs> I was like, what is this guy doing? Yeah, I think Big Al was the headliner that night, and I, we had smoked together. So I think he was even just like, oh, that was fun. I got high and got to see a crazy thing It was crazy happen. And, you know, the people who did enjoy it, it did light up. A little bit of the the space for them to be like, oh, we saw this crazy thing. We're awake. We're definitely awake now. Yeah. <laughs> watching the show. I think you did a similarly crazy thing. It may have been at the meltdown. There's that set you do where you just ask for applause. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. For like seven minutes straight. Yeah. That was planned, right? That one wasn't planned. I actually was going up to do a five-minute... fucking plan? Are those, there any plans pl to this? Anything that is like a big swing like that, it's kind of not planned. There are some things where I've done that I thought about it a little bit or thought like, oh, that'd be fun. But that one I really had, you know, because it was, you know, taped for Camille and Jonah's show. And so you're kind of going out to do like five, seven minutes or maybe even 10, I think it was, and they chop it down. And I actually had a sev seven minute set that I really liked. And I was like kind of excited to go out there. But the the fun thing about that show is that, you know, Emily was always like, hey, treat treat this show, even though we're taping it for Comedy Central, treat it the way we always treat it on Wednesdays, where it's like, be loose, be fun, and do what you do. And um, I think her saying that enough times was just kind of burned in the back of my mind that as soon as I went up and the audience was clapping and there's a part of me just was like, hey, keep it going. Hey, keep clapping. And then I just realized like, Oh, how long, like something went off in my head where I was like, how long would they clap? <laughs> Never expecting that they actually would. Yeah. But I think part of me was like, very quickly, my brain did the math that I was like, if there were no cameras, they wouldn't keep clapping. But there are. And I think this crowd of clearly very big comedy fans in yeah. general 
I think they're all aware enough to go, oh, if we do this, we actually will get to see what it looks like later. Right. And say that we were a it, part of it. It was the perfect inside baseball it, crowd. And, but it, exactly. And it just, in an instant, all that information, I was just like, oh, this, I think this actually would work. And that's why I just kept uh, doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it really did. And then I was also like, hey, I would try this on a Wednesday. But like I said, you know, if there were no cameras, I could have maybe gotten a minute out of everybody. But the mm. fact that there were cameras, you could tell people being like, oh, let's, I don't know. Let's see what this ends up looking like when it's cut together and airs on television. I think it ended up working. I think so, too. I mean, I also like that I didn't burn any material. Not that it would have mattered. I don't, I don't know who would have, you know, been so irate if I did that material later on on something else. But um, they would have been livid. It kind of would be funny for me to try to redo that on something <laughs> where people are like, you can't do this again. <laughs> Make that my TV thing. Is that I give people to clap for too long? You go on Conan, <laughs> your own. <laughs> Everyone's like, dude, you've got to start writing some jokes. You're you're truly falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> I know you don't like writing, but it's time. Mm-hmm. It's time, Rory. Contemplate one idea. Yeah. But yeah, that was fun. I love shit like that. I love it so much. It it's It's tough right now in comedy just on the outset and someone who does not do comedy but does follow it i feel like i follow it less these days mm-hmm. in part because i just like look i don't know everyone has a special does everyone uh, yeah it's a little oversaturated right it's, With it's, a bunch of different stuff which i guess is good and bad but it's good because you were like oh wow ali wong i don't know who the fuck this person is and the special's really good right yeah yeah but then you i try some stuff out and it's like look man you are are like a C version John Mulaney, <laughs> and I have just this out, I just yeah. can't do an out. You like have not. You should do ten minutes, right? Yeah, like that's how comedians start. It's like you do ten minutes. Yeah, five minutes is how you start. I guess when I when I say the good and bad of it, I would say the good of it is that for audiences, it means you have this plethora of like it's just a buffet of totally. comedy that you can seek out and find. And if you are so inclined to watch you know, 200 specials a year. You can do that and more. You totally and you can, can see all of them. You totally um, can. You can see everything from the greatest jokes to what you just described, the, the, the way too sooners. <laughs> you shouldn't yeah. be doing it. The downside of it is for, you know, some of those comics, and I can't really speak to experience on this, but my interpretation is that it's not healthy as a performer to, to do things sooner than you, you necessarily should, especially if it's just for the sake of exposure or for the sake of, you know, wanting to get your name out there. Like, I think doing that stuff too soon is, isn't is good. You've really got to learn what it is you're doing, I think, to sustain a longer career. Because, you know, maybe you get your name out there. You shoot a special way too soon, and maybe it's it's okay. But, you know, and then who knows? Maybe you get cast on a show, and you never look back, and you have this crazy career. But in just in terms of looking at it specifically from a stand-up perspective, you know, you really want to learn how to build the whole machine from the ground up because right. you knowing how it was put together is you knowing how to to operate it and how to work it and to me that's what elongates a uh, career and sustains a career is uh going through the shitty parts of it i mean that's what i i think that's what people mean when they say like you know paying your dues or learning the ropes and stuff it's all kind of falls into that same thing but yeah it's hard to be the person who tell someone to not shoot a special too soon when it's like, ah, you know, if I oh, look back on my there. career, maybe I did there. things, you know, and before I should have done it. But in 2007, if Netflix came to you and was like, here's money for a special, you would probably do it. Exactly. And you, you would just go, oh, I'm going to, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's, it's hard to, as a comic to know these things in advance. It's right. like when someone goes, should I move to New York or LA? It's like, it's hard to know in advance that as a stand-up comic, you should move to New York. Like that's where you can just get up a ton and it's a little more convenient and there's this different type of community. But then that's all coming, that's coming from someone who didn't move to LA first. So I actually don't have the information of why that maybe is better yeah. than New York. So it's, it's, it's all, I don't know. That's the thing. I mean, I just look at it from the perspective of the audience. It's like, well, in terms of like an audience finding entertainers, like, you can't complain. Whoever you are, no matter what personality you are, there is definitely a stand-up comic for you that currently has a special. Yes. <laughs> you do have to look for it, though. <laughs> you do, yeah. You do have to mine a little bit, especially like in the the world of like the lesser-known people, for sure. And I mean, that was kind of like what it was like in two thousand four and two thousand five. I mean, suddenly every comic was putting out a CD, and it was a lot of comics doing it before they really had an hour 
And right. maybe they had like 30 to 40 minutes that were even that wasn't even great. It was just okay. And it was still like an hour long CD. But, you know, that also was like cost nothing mm. in, in the grander scheme of things as opposed to a special where it's like, ah, people are throwing some money around for some of these things that don't necessarily pan out. Well, it's hard to know what the end game is because in the 90s, you know, everyone wanted the Seinfeld path. Right. Yeah, yeah. Which was like you do you do stand up and maybe I'll get a sitcom. Yeah. And then the two thousands happen, mid two thousands happen, it's like, oh, maybe I'll do stand up and I'll do like a Louis show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's not great timing for Louis show. But no, you're right. I mean that's it, people e- want even that. even with uh I mean people still want that. Even people with still what's want going that. on, they still go, Oh, I want that like kind of uh, control of my career. Totally. But yeah. that that like the amount of people who can do a Gerard Carmichael situation mm-hmm. It, there's not many, and there's not many that should. Right? It's, it's yeah, yeah. The amount of material you need for that. The amount of material, but also the amount of natural talent, the amount of like uh, work ethic and drive you have to have to to pull it off is is pretty crazy. And then on top of it, you really truly have to like stand out. I mean, right. you look at what Gerard's doing, and you're like, oh, well, he's that perfect equation of you know all of those things. He works really hard at it. He has a unique perspective. It's all very personal and and all that, but. You do get comics that go, I'm going to do what Gerard Carmichael does. And it's like, oh, I don't know that you know how much he works yeah. to make that happen. Yeah. yeah. I, and also, um, I I don't know him very well, but in the limited interaction, um, and I've seen him in play, he's always nice to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you like, that. people never tell you that. I he's think. a sweet man. <laughs> Being nice to people goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. like half the battle in some of this stuff. Right, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's like, do, do I like spending time with you? Yeah, yeah, Are yeah. you not terribly obnoxious? Right, right, right. I think a lot of people are terribly obnoxious. I think there are a lot. And also, like, you gotta think about the personality of someone who craves attention like we do <laughs> there's going to be some obnoxious people i'm glad i'm lumped into this now <laughs> in there oh wonderful <laughs> thanks for it um yeah it's uh it they're definitely like annoying obnoxious it's it, i mean that's the part of it that's like any other job right you know there's just very few people that are at their job and like i have i work with 20 people and i think they're all great <laughs> it's like mm, there's no way there's no possible way so you look at stand-up comics, especially or uh, comics in a comedy scene in LA. It's like there's so many comics. It's like there's not a chance that you can't have some annoying, obnoxious people. You just see who you can deal with and who you can't. Yeah, yeah. Career-wise, where does where do you fit into all of this? I don't know. I think I I think right now I'm I'm somewhere on a spectrum of a comic who uh, who has I I. It's kind of it's a it's a tough question because it's hard to like kind of perceive yourself in that way. But I think I'm at a I'm I think I'm at a great point. I feel like I've gotten the right amount of exposure. I think I've put in the right amount of time to really learn what I enjoy about stand up, so that I can confidently do what I enjoy and not necessarily let the crowds dictate what I do. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm really fortunate for that because I think that's a tough place to get to and I haven't always been there I've all, I've also very recently done some shows that like a lot of the crowd didn't like it but I really did come off stage and was like you know I wanted everybody to like it but I really stuck to my guns and really enjoyed what I did do what did um, they like? I mean they just might not like the vibe of being silly and like sometimes I'll repeat stuff and push I mean even I opened my special by saying anal a thousand times and the yeah. amount of tweets I got people saying that that's not funny I'm, which I'm 100% fine with, but it's like, yeah, but I do think it's funny and I'm the artist making the thing. Yeah. So I should be the one that decides and you obviously get to decide if you watch it or not. And if I lose you, then I lose you. But at the same time, you're telling me how it's not funny was followed by 20 people telling me that they loved it. Right. So it's like, to be at that point... There definitely is a stubbornness to your routine. Yeah, I think if people... I, truly, the things I think are funny... If no one in the room is laughing, and I really don't think I can get them, I don't like lay into stuff. But I, I like the idea that jokes can be anything. A joke just isn't like I noticed something and then I told a story or I set a setup and I did like a joke can be anything in the moment that people laugh at. And if it's for repeating a word <laughs> and an audience of two hundred people, if ten people keep laughing at me doing something. I'm okay letting the other 190 people take a break while these 10 people 
become fans for life because they're like, oh, th- I I love this type of thing. And it's like, <laughs> I do too. So I shouldn't ignore you 10 people. I should lay into it. Right. And next time I'm in town, I need you 10 people to each bring 10 people who think this <laughs> is funny. And then the whole show can be this fucking madhouse of like us even wondering what did we even laugh at? Like, I I, I don't know. There's just moments like that that I, I cherish and I, I love. And I, I think I'm... because I am at this level of confidence, I think I'm willing to explore those places and not worry so much about losing the audience. You know, that, that is a place I was at before where I really cared about exposure in my career, making sure I'm doing the right things. And it's hard to not think about that some of the time, you know, I used to think about all the time, but now I'm kind of coming out of it, especially in Los Angeles. But now I think I've been fortunate enough to get some acting work. I want to act. I want to like actually learn how to be, an actor, not just in comedy, but in like stuff that's dramatic. I want to write, you know, TV shows. I want to write movies. I want to direct. I want to do all of the forms of, uh, all of those different mediums of entertainment. I still love doing standup because it's so different and it's instant. It's such a different intimate experience, but you know, I am intrigued and interested in how to make a painting like a movie. Like how do you paint a movie? Like how do you actually make it and then sit back and be like, all right, we covered everything. I love it. Like in my opinion, it's, it's perfect. Those are things I want to do. And I, I think where I fall on the spectrum is someone who is not in the fastest way, but slowly moving towards the opportunities to get to, to do that. I think I'm putting myself in the position to have those doors open up at the right time. Mm. And then it's just a matter of whether you, walk through the door and then it's a matter of like putting in the work you know i've i'm working on a tv show right now for comedy central and i'm i'm really excited about it it's, it's the first thing that i've ever been like this is me this is a specific idea this is a character that i i do and we created the world for this character and now myself and and my buddy Stu, or we're working on the idea with my buddy scott like we're kind of coming up with this whole this whole world for a character I've been doing for years and it's it's so satisfying to sit down now and really try to learn how to become not only a writer who feels like I'm writing good dialogue and interesting stories but also learn the the work ethic and the discipline of being a writer which I'm not good at I don't have those things but I'm just now diving into it so I'm kind of learning as I you go You don't think you have the work ethic? I I don't well, not in the world of like writing I mean even in my stand up I like spontaneous improvised moments uh, it, it takes a lot for me to sit down and really work out an idea. It's always, it always pans out for me when I do sit down and do the homework. Um, but it's, I just have that brain that just, I, I have a hard time just sitting still and diving into a, a project. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to learn how to become the person who does. Do you think that's like that. just a focus issue? I think so. I mean, I was a horrible student in school and I think it's completely attributed to the fact that if I didn't care about the subject, I gave it no attention. Yeah. And I and 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 the the downside of that is that now things I do care about I'm still wired to just not give it the proper amount. I, I, I'm of kind of attention. the same way on that so, though. Yeah, it makes you feel bad, but at the same time, <laughs> yeah, it you makes go, you feel bad. It, it makes you feel bad because you are like, ah, I don't know. I've been given an opportunity. I really should like uh, I should take a hold of it. And I think as I've matured, I've become better at spotting opportunities and being like, all right, really dig your heels in and actually do this work. So. Yeah. It's satisfying right now to know that, you know, we are working through this script and I feel like we're on a decent schedule for it. And I actually really like what we're writing. So I'm I'm learning what the benefits and the joys of doing the work are mm. as I do it. To do stand-up comedy and now to write this script, to do this podcast, like I'm in the middle of like pre-production on this short, first short film that I'm directing in January. Oh, nice. And I've thought about constantly why mm-hmm. that there's some desire in myself and you to put ourselves out there in some way yeah and i've also i've often wondered especially lately what is it inside me that's like i need someone else to see this yeah because most people live their life and they're fucking fine yeah, yeah not yeah. doing that yeah and aren't you like dazzled by those people <laughs> um <laughs> Right. You're I'm, so impressed by their ability to just be self-contained. Yeah, I'm dazzled by that. <laughs> I, I think it's, uh, dazzled's not the word. I'm impressed by their modesty. For sure. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think I think it's just something about being a creative person that you, you've seen art that affected you and you kind of want to make that contribution to the, the world of it. And you want other people, you, you're curious, can I affect somebody? Can right. I Can I make something 
you know, I, I think when you look at really good art, you almost wonder what, how, how does the artist feel about it? Because sometimes I'll do a stand-up show and, and, you know, the audience might walk away with something different than what I walked away with. So I think, I think we live in this curiosity of being like, well, what is it like from the other side of the, of the coin? And you know that you have the talent and the ability to like do it. So I think you, you know, we're probably, maybe all artists are probably similar in the, the sense that you're kind of like, well, it's, I, I really do want to do it. And I, I think we like the adrenaline of, of hoping it's not bad. Yeah. I think you live in a world and I say you like sort of the, the we, but a world of being like, am I going to make something bad? Like, I don't know. There's a rush in hoping it's good. And yes. like, then you, when it is good before anyone tells you it's good, when you know it's good, you have that like adrenaline rush and then to know that it's something you can now put out there and if other people tell you it's good it's really like you just kind of gave yourself this elongated high yeah which unfortunately in the world of art dissipates it is <laughs> elongated but it does dissipate quickly because then you're already on to the next thing right and wanting to recreate the high that you didn't even necessarily get to enjoy all of it because you already jumped on to the next thing i think once you're in that fucking hamster wheel it's a hamster wheel. I don't think there's get any getting out unless it's you like just... It's like any drug, though. Of course. I think the only way out is if you took a break that was way too long, but I think we live in too much fear to to do that. Yeah. Um, I always imagine, like, if I was 60, would I just stop doing all this stuff? And if, if I were successful at 60, would I just enjoy the money I made? Or would I continue to do this? And just yesterday, I was talking with a buddy. I was like... I don't think there's a retirement plan in this job. I think I mean you Norman Lear's ninety five. <laughs> exactly. Norman Lear's. I mean, he's the best case scenario. And he's also probably like, I just still haven't created my masterpiece. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's the case, but I do know, uh, you know, he came on the show in August, and I, I went to his office to do one of these, and you know, you walk in and it's like every photo on the wall is him with. Jimmy Carter and like, it's like a, a <laughs> right, Herbie yeah. Hancock and like every person. Right. He's met every person. Yeah. And you talk to him about his life and his career and he has these stories that are so great. And there's two things that I noticed. He totally feels happy and satisfied with his life. Mm -hmm. And yet he also feels totally unsatisfied with the art he's made in yeah. some way. Yeah. There's this weird duality to it that yeah. he hasn't reconciled, and which I think all great artists have that. It's like almost this eternal rabbit chasing the carrot that's dangling from a string in front of their, in front of their yeah. face. You're always like, I can get it. I think I can... Except it's yeah. not as funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, th I, I think it's... It's often sad. I think you're just in the machine. It is sad, but I think, I, I think in some cases it's... It's sad knowing that you're always reaching for this thing, but I think, and and maybe this is where the sanity kicks in. If you can sit back and go, yes, I am chasing it, but I look at what I get to do, and look at how I get to do it, yeah. and look at how I'm my own boss. Look, look how at the, the look how the chase looks. Yeah, and I did make you know, my, I am comfortable. I'm not like struggling, and I mean that's a big deal in this war, especially nowadays. Like right. that's kind of crazy. Like to be grateful for what you have when you have it because it could all go away at any moment i think i think uh, it, it, to know that you're still chasing this 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 creating this thing but it's kind of comforting to get to sit back and be like hey it's pretty fun getting to chase this thing yeah you know i think that's what makes the sadness go away for me is that whatever i am chasing i don't really know what it is but i am happy that i i get to do it on my terms at 24 in D.C., doing stand-up in like a slam poetry kind of show, I think that's how you started, mm -hmm. did you think you would get to this point? Um, did you have that confidence? No, I think there was, I, I think for maybe three or four years there was, or even longer, I mean, I think there's, I mean, maybe even currently, there's just always this sense of doubt that maybe you're not doing enough or maybe you're not as far along as you should be. It it contradicts what I have said before, but it's kind of the Norman Lear thing you're talking about. You you have this one side and then you have this other side and you either you know obsess over not what you don't have or you have gratitude for what you do have. And either way, you still live in the middle of it. But yeah, I think at that time it was like, "Well, how do I move up? Am I delusional? Like am I good at this? At what point do I wonder if I've 
I think early on, you wonder at what point do you walk away from this? And that's even when you're doing fine on stage because <laughs> right. you are like, well, ha- there is no, no one or anything to tell you how to move up. Yeah. Like there, there's someone in DC right now who is very good at stand up who wonders, what am I doing and how do I get attention and how do I move up? How do I make this a successful career? And the reality is you're the, you're like you just said, you're the president and owner of the company that is you. You are the product that you put out there. And like all small businesses that want to be big businesses, it's, it's on you. There's no one to answer those questions for you. You just have to like figure it out and hope that you've made the right decisions and hope that the right people see you who can maybe put in your name at a club or put in your name to a casting director or put in a name for a writer's room or mm. put in a name with other comics to get you local shows or, you know, whatever your goal is. You're either going to hate me after this question or, 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 or not. So <laughs> all right, sort of like how you do your uh, stand-up routine sometimes where you're taking <laughs> the gamble. Right. Your family, which we haven't really discussed at all, mm-hmm. they worked in post office, right? They were uh, yeah. postal workers. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know your mother passed away at what, 25? Uh, she was 25, yeah, yeah. She was 25? She was 25. It was on my first birthday. It was on your first yeah, birthday? Yeah, so it wasn't when I was 25. Yeah, she was 25 years old. Okay. This changes like, things. <laughs> this greatly changes the answer. So you never got to meet her? I never met her. No, just in that year of your infant mind, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure this is strange to think about. On the outset and throughout this conversation, you, you don't strike me as someone who is terribly sentimental or emotional. Not that you're devoid of emotions, <laughs> but it's not your, it doesn't seem like your first thing. You don't lean on that. Yeah. Is that, um, is that fair? I don't want to mischaracterize. Is that fair? No, I would, I would say that's, um, I, yeah, no, I'd say that's pretty accurate. Yeah. yeah. Have you thought about what she would have thought about your life? And oh career? yeah. Oh, many, many times, especially when it's someone that you, you don't know or that you only know of through other people's interpretation, which is like the worst game of telephone because you're not getting to make, you know, it's like when someone tells you about a comic or a TV show and then you finally see it and you're like, I don't, that person is horrible at, <laughs> at understanding what that thing is. <laughs> like whether you like it or not, right? Uh, you might go, Oh my God, that was actually the best TV show. I can't believe you said it was just okay. Or the opposite where like, it was horrible and you loved it. So it's kind of that. It's like a person you'll never get to like have your own assessment of. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it isn't something that I, I think about like too often that I'm just constantly mulling over. But I do have this genuine sense of curiosity under the surface that is, uh, you know, kind of wondering like, would she, it, do I have a sense of humor that's like instinctually in my DNA reflective of her from what people tell me, I'd say, I don't, maybe probably not. And also it makes me wonder like, well, in, because I mean, even my special, I open like talking about anal, like the stuff that I do joke about, it's, there's, there's jokes I do that don't affect me in a sense that it's R rated or sexual or inappropriate. It does make me wonder if she would like see him be like no i think he's really funny or grow to like think it was uh look at my son yeah to be like you know like in the you know if my daughter got into stand-up and talked about the most horrific things and maybe it's because i do stand-up i i could uh analyze it from the perspective of i don't think it's funny or i do think there's a joke there or oh i think you're just being crass for the sake of being crass but you know people who don't do it maybe can't analyze it that same way um yeah, there is there is a curiosity of like, well, would she have found this funny? Or, you know, and maybe this is why I don't mull over too much, because it could also go the opposite way, where she's like, I don't want you doing this anymore. <laughs> or the family is embarrassed. Of, you should be an accountant. I, just how my dad is and how my whole family, on his side at least, is and how jokey they are. I doubt that she'd be like that because they're all like kind of have a class clown element to them. Right. But it is, it is, it is a... a it's 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 also one of those things that you get curious about, but 
you don't get too emotional over because you just have to accept it's an answer you, to a question you'll never you'll never have that answer to that question. You just kind of live with it. How did you get through that growing up? It's funny because I was I was well, it's not funny, but I was recently talking about this with somebody. It's it especially because she died at such a young age. It's just my reality. So as I got older, which I would assume is maybe like six, seven, eight. I don't I can't recall specifically, but. Around those ages, you start to understand what it is people are telling you when they tell you that your mother passed away. Because as a kid, yeah, it's not like you take that information tragically because you don't understand what that means. You don't understand what a mother is, even to yourself. Not that you don't like instinctually crave it or not, but if someone's like your mom died, you're like, well, who is that? <laughs> like, I don't know. Who are we talking about? Um, and then you start to... As you get older, you start to reflect on maybe what you don't have or didn't have, or even those questions like you're asking, like, well, who was that person? And, you know, what would their what would their opinions of me have been, even before I started doing this? I think I think it's any not eternal, but I think it is a lifelong struggle that you do cope with is all of these questions that will never have a specific answer outside of that horrific game of telephone that you get from, you know, her friends or or family. Um, yeah, it's on, it's ongoing. You just, you just cope with it and it just becomes your reality. I will say having a a daughter now definitely makes me deal with it differently. And it's, it makes me, uh, it makes it harder to deal with because now I have this parental perspective that I never had before. And also I can see how young I was when she passed away it was like that when I turned 25, I got to understand how young she really was when she passed away. You know, when you're a kid and they're like, your mom passed away at 25, you're like, well, that's a long life. And then you get to 25 and you're like, oh my God, that's not really that long at all. That's very, that's a blink of an eye. You're 25. Um, yeah, it's, it's just something you, you constantly cope with. And there's times when it's really dramatic and, and sad and emotional. And there's other times where you're like, you're just at an acceptance of like, well, that's my reality and there's nothing I can do about it. So I have a theory. Yeah. And if I'm wrong, I always say this on the show, please just tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> please just ask me to leave if I'm wrong. I'll, at all. I'll leave your home. <laughs> there is an absurdity to your work. I don't want to call you an absurdist comic. I don't want to give you any categorization because I think that's boring. Yeah. But there is a clear absurdity to the work you're doing. You're not... Sure. A Seinfeld joke punchline box. For sure, yeah. You're not like a Mike Birbiglia who's like, some of this is funny, but most of this is a story. Or telling a story, a bigger story, yeah. Definitely not a storyteller. That's not your thing. There's absurdity there. That's what it seems to be grounded in. And the idea of a life being cut short at 25 is absurd. Yeah. It it makes no sense. There's no rhyme or reason to that. Yeah. And I, I have to imagine that the two are not entirely disconnected. Yeah. I mean, they, I, on a subconscious level, they very well could be connected to the fact that there's no, like, specific meaning right. to it or... Like, this is all nonsense. Or, de- or, or death in general. I think that's, uh, on a conscious level, I would say that it it is my perception of, like, what... <laughs> this experience of life is is very much that that it doesn't make any sense why we perceive our reality to be what it is and collectively it's kind of strange because this is crazy whatever this thing is that we didn't ask to be a part of that we're just in um i would say there's a there's a chance there's a connectivity between how i view death and life I would almost say 100% because of this particular event. It certainly made me view my effort at trying to succeed at this thing that for a long time didn't pay any money and you just kind of had to like it. I mean, I certainly have the mindset of pushing to do this because, because you can die at 25. And wouldn't you rather say... I put in everything I had to try to do this crazy job to do this, um, this crazy, whatever even this is, whatever like it is to be a stand up or an artist or a performance artist who's willing to go on stage and talk in front of strangers. 
there's a part of me that's like, I would rather die attempting to do that. And it's definitely attributed to the fact that not only that she passed away, but that she also passed away at a really young age that I'm like driven to, to put my best foot forward now while I can, not knowing in any way what tomorrow is going to be like. I'd rather look back and be like, all right, I gave, I gave all that I had towards this thing I loved doing as opposed to just living my life following some sort of a, a playbook that's just been handed to you on how you're supposed to, you know, go to college, get, get a job, you're, work on retirement. You're 37, 38? 37. Do you fear death at all? I think I used to. I think I actually, I, I think I went through a phase where I really did. And then I went through a phase where I really didn't. And now I'm kind of back into it because of the kid. And because I know the perspective of growing up without a parent who you didn't really get to know. So now I sort of have it because I wouldn't wish that on my like worst enemy. So now I kind of am back to like, not that I live the healthiest lifestyle, but I am back into being like, ah, oh, fuck, I gotta, anytime I like, even if my diet's bad or I, I'm just a, an asshole with like drinking, I do think to myself like, all right, well, I do have a kid now that, you know, my mother died of cancer. I think I'd look back here like, well, you died of a heart attack because you ate like a pile of shit. <laughs> it's like, well, then would my kid go, oh, so you mean my dad could be here? <laughs> like, yeah, he could. If he just would have made a more mature effort, <laughs> your dad could be around and you would get to know him. So if he just ate a little bit if, better, if he just would have had a salad, just one vegetable every now and then and or a smoothie even. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I maybe have it again for that reason, but it's a different version of, of fearing death. It's not so selfish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hope for your sake and for your kid's sake and your wife's sake that you um, eat a fucking that vegetable. That I live forever? <laughs> no one needs that. No one needs that. But I, yeah, I think that actually is hell. Um, living forever. Living forever. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, uh, I hope you can eat something like a salad every once in a while. Yeah. And um, well, we'll see. I'm not going to make a promise. Yeah, good. And definitely we'll don't make it on record here. We'll see what they have at, at Shake Shack. Great. Well, we'll check back in in 20 years and see if you're yeah. still alive. Yeah, cool. Wonderful. Roy Scoville. Thank you. Thank you. Smart journalism, fascinating topics, words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>